Hey, everybody. Welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm your host, as always. Welcome to a very sophisticated episode. We have Biscotti, the very high-end, Italian-based, Italian-inspired cold water hash and other products brands. Uh, honestly, I don't even love cold water hash, but this is an incredible product, and Luca is a great founder. It is a really, really interesting episode about how to create a real brand. It's something that a lot of people talk about, but it's very hard to do. You're going to learn a ton, I promise. Uh, Luca of Biscotti. Before we jump into the show, I want to give a very special thank you to our new partner and sponsor, NorCal Cannabis Company, the most complete cannabis ecosystem in California. NorCal Cannabis is shaping the industry in new ways every day. With 12 tons of annual yield, delivery to 10 million Californians in under an hour, a growing network of retail locations, and a living portfolio of brands, this is cannabis. To learn more, visit thefutureofcannabis.com. 12 tons of annual yield, that is a big number. Delivery to 10 million Californians in under an hour, that is pretty impressive. NorCal, a little bit under the radar, but they are one of the major players in California. You're going to hear increasingly more about them. We're really excited to partner and have them on board here. Uh, if you listen to the show all the time, you know we had Jigger, the president, on uh, a couple months back. Fascinating story. They've raised a bunch of money. They're raising more. If you're interested in that conversation, please let me know. We're going to have Joel, the CMO. Uh, he came from Twitter on the show in the next couple months. Uh, shout out to my friend Ben over at NorCal for putting this together. Much appreciated. Thank you, guys guys for supporting independent media. All right, let's jump into the show with Luca of Biscotti. Luca, good to see you. Thanks for being Thank here. Thank you for man. having me. You reminded me that we actually met once before at Elevate yep. some years ago. That was three years ago. Bring some nostalgia. Yeah, it was very strange. Um, Elevate was my first official event in California that was cannabis related. And what were your impressions? Seeing everybody there, listening to the talks? Like well, number one, I showed up 40 minutes before it started because I saw that Humboldt, which is now Doses, had announced that they're going to give out 50 of their pens. Mm -hmm. um, so I showed up with three of my schoolmates at that time, got the pens. It was interesting to see a cannabis event being held at a museum. Because that's what it was, right? Mm -hmm. The Open Museum. Mm -hmm. um, it was also really interesting to see all these young founders that were developing ancillary technologies for the cannabis industry. Because mm -hmm. I'd come from, yeah, flying in from Italy where you couldn't even talk about cannabis. Not at all. Um, very limited. So where like did myself, you grow up in Italy? Um, I lived in Italy for a total of about four years. Uh -huh. I've grown up all across the world, but I would go back to Italy every summer because we have a summer home there. Got it. But it was interesting for me because in Italy, like, I had an Instagram that I would hide. I had a, the hashtag was hashtag gweed, which is a made up name. And I would post up pictures of flour in Italy, like rolling a joint, smoking it somewhere in Italy. This is 2014, 2015? Yeah, 2014, 2015, 2016. And I would delete the Instagram every single day from my phone and then reactivate it, turn it back on, post something, delete it again and make wow. sure that it was gone because there's genuine fear of the government finding out. We also really? don't have the same privacy laws in Italy. Got it. So 
for us, like keeping the whole cannabis aspect, it definitely had to be hidden. Um, but at the same time, what was very strange was that 99% of the people that I knew were smoking. Sure. It was hard, harder to find someone that didn't smoke than someone that did smoke. And was it, like a lot of places in Europe I've been, it's like basically a split with like yes. 80% tobacco and yep. maybe a little bit of hash. So, I mean, the main reason for that is that it's really hard to find flour. It's become a lot easier since Barcelona started opening up uh -huh. um, and the other Italian, like Italy started opening up a little bit on the CBD light side, which yeah. is kind of a joke. Um, but it used to be near impossible. I mean, the only time you'd find flour was if you had a friend in Amsterdam that went or lived there and would ship it to you. It. And every time the shipment, I mean, we're talking one to two grams in a single envelope that would arrive at your house and you'd have like 10 friends show up excited to smoke that flour from Amsterdam. So you think to yourself, I'm going to the land of the free weed. Yeah, and I had no idea what I was getting into. Okay. Because so I had heard about it, but it was definitely much larger than I thought it was. Got it. And so you land here, you go to Oaksterdam. Yep. How so was your Oaksterdam experience? It was a lot to handle at first. I think because I flew out, I never lived on, I never lived in the United States even though I'm half American. Um, and I'd never been to the West Coast. So I flew out to California and I had only seen Californian movies, shows, and obviously like Google searches of seeing what it was like. Read up on a lot of articles about Oakland's criminal activity. And when I flew in, it was kind of shocking in the sense that it was not what I had expected. It seemed very, um, honestly, it's very hard to categorize Oakland. It's such a special place. Mm -hmm. There's a very good vibe there. And I stayed at an Airbnb for about two weeks. What was interesting was that on the way from the airport to the Airbnb, I had signed up on Ease, talked to a doctor in the car, in the Uber, got in my medical card, placed the order, and 30 minutes after I got to the Airbnb, I had the driver at the door with my cannabis. You're like, what a country. I mean, yeah, you're going from Italy where it's near impossible to find anything to I got $250 worth of cannabis delivered to an Airbnb with a medical what did you order that day? At that time, it was Dabacus. Okay. You remember that yeah, brand? Sure. So I had two grams of Dabacus. It was, uh, I want to say the Guild Extracts at THCA. Nice. And then flour, but it might have been Humboldt Farms. Can't really remember who it was. Uh -huh. And then I dropped down, got that bag, shared it with the Airbnb host, took an Uber over to San Francisco because I'd read a lot about Spark. Was there Uber in Italy at the time? I believe so because it went, it got, they passed, they allowed Uber to play in the Italian game and then they banned them for a bit. Okay. So the cities yeah, like yeah. Rome that revolted, Florence yeah. revolted. But what was cool was I took an Uber over to San Francisco and to Spark. And Spark, I had seen a lot of it online and I saw that they had on site consumption. And that was the first thing that I wanted to try because mm -hmm. I was like, there's no way that I could comprehend what it would be like to consume cannabis in a public space in a major city like San Francisco. And yeah, I went there. I, I don't think they've ever seen anyone as excited as I was because I walked in. I was like, I've got my medical card. I got it on ease. Like, oh, you can't just have it on your phone. I was like, cool, I'll be right back. Went over to a print shop, printed it out, came <laughs> back in. It's like, what can I buy and smoke here? And they kind of looked at me. They're like, oh, you must be from out of yeah. the country. They're um, like, literally everything. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I want everything you have. So I tried five or six concentrates. Yeah, there weren't any regulations on how much you could buy. Yeah. Um, bought like two or three ounces of flour, couple of pre-rolls, and then I thought I could roll a spliff in there. Definitely could not. Yeah, no tobacco. No, yeah. 
the only thing that they allowed me to do was start um, load up a volcano, which I was definitely very acquainted with. And following that, I mean, it was just a journey. I think I spent the first six months at Oakstrand was just a deep dive into the industry. My mission when I came in was um, trying to be as humble as I could because I'd learned a lot about cannabis through forums and reading all the books. I read Ed Rosenthal's book, um, tried to get as much academia as I could in me, but I knew that when I got there, I couldn't, I, I knew that I didn't know everything. And so I was like, I need to understand what this industry is about, what these people have been about. And so through Oaksterdam, the coolest part was they, they allowed you and they would announce all these events that occurred. So every week there'd be like, um, what is now Measure Z Club from the pop-up sesh, cloud sesh, all the way to, I started going to Area 101, um, going up to their farmer's market, and then there I would meet a couple of farmers. I meet the guys at CSI Humboldt, Spoiled, a bunch of these brands, and then I would go up further to Garberville, start meeting people there. Um, it was really interesting because I got, I think a lot of these farmers were kind of, they had a hard time accepting newcomers into the industry, but I was genuinely passionate and I truly loved what I was doing or what I was studying and I think they understood that. Because mm -hmm. for me it was like, it's not that I came here with, out of a Harvard, um, Harvard MA or Harvard MBA with $100 million backing me starting a new brand. Mm -hmm. Like it was, I gave up everything I had in Europe and I had a lot of comfort there, flew out to deep dive into this industry. It was authentic. Yeah. Yeah. I, they realized that I wasn't there to bullshit them. And at what point do you say, I want to have my own brand? Um, I think it took me about six to eight months because I was trying to figure out what kind of brand I wanted. I knew I wanted to do something. My goal was to start something here, bring it up to Canada potentially, or bring it back to Italy. Because mm -hmm. Italy has started passing all these laws that would allow um, hemp cultivation. Mm -hmm. And because of our current economic situation, they started allowing uh, anyone who's under 35 would be granted, I think, 350,000 euro as a grant to start a hemp uh, farm. Amazing. Well, that's what I thought too, until I started looking into the logistics and the actual monetary funds that you would need to start a project like that. Got it. And to do any kind of hemp cultivation, you're looking at like two to five million just to get the equipment ready. So like, okay, that's probably not gonna work because raising capital in Italy is also not the same as raising capital in the Bay. And did you try to raise it here and say, I've got this plan for no. Italy? No, because I, I looked at the logistics. Also, Italy is very, um, what's the term in English, but they're it's very paternal, as in like, uh, no, it's nepotistic. So okay. you do need to have a lot of connections to get anything done. Incestuous, maybe. Right, Yeah. and so I, put that in the back burner. I was like, let me focus on California for a bit. Um, started working with a company called Flourish Farms uh -huh. of Sonoma. That lasted very little. They had a brilliant idea of using this um, technology to bring outdoor light indoor and grow indoor plants with the sun. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was a phenomenal idea. Unfortunately, that company didn't work out. So I decided to move away. Took me a little bit of time to figure out exactly where I wanted to go with it. And then kind of just hit me because I was doing, I went to a couple courses with Frenchy Cannoli mm -hmm. and I'd been following him from Italy. So I knew what he was about. I took the classes with him, realized that there was truly a lack of understanding and a lack of a demand and supply of traditional hash. And in talking with Frenchy. Non-volatile. Right. We're and I mean like yeah. real, like yeah. old school hash because I think California has. Explain what that means. Talk about the difference. For myself. Old school hash for me is dry, dry sift. So um, 
it's hashed, it's been sifted through a dry process using um, stainless steel mesh screens and then pressed with heat. But there is no um, solvent being involved, there's no solvent extraction mm -hmm. in that process. I think now that when I arrived here, the California market saw hash or cold water hash is that full mill. So very specific micron sized um, heads that are taken in. So it's like 73 to 120 micron sized heads. And for myself, although I truly appreciated the art that went into it, I couldn't see the European consumer that would go to the store, the Middle Eastern that goes in once it went wreck, buying that and rolling it up in their spliff. Because mm. I was acquainted and used to Moroccan hash and Lebanese hash, which yeah. is a completely different world. And for us, like hash in Italy is five to 12 euro per gram, depending on where you get it. Mm -hmm. And then I came here, I was like, okay, how do I roll my spliff? I go to the dispenser and the only hash options are $120 pre-tax. Mm -hmm. I was like, there is no chance that a European is ever gonna mix that in. Yeah. And although I understood what kind of consumer wanted that product and I appreciated it, I realized that the other product, the one that I was used to, was not available on the market, except for Frenchie. Yeah. Um, and Frenchie, I truly respect him for the amount of education he's pursued and how much he's pushed hash and the meaning and the importance of having old school hash on the market. So yeah, I took a deep dive. I called one of my best friends, Andy, he's currently my co-founder, went up to Canada and stayed with him for a bit. Um, started discussing a few things and I told him, I was like, I think we could do something with hash. There is none on the market or there's very little of it. Um, I'm I was very convinced that post 2018, once it went legal, um, that you'd start having more consumers going into the store. A lot of A, the older patients who are used to old school hash looking for it, and B, people from outside of California that were used to that version of hash that wasn't available. Mm -hmm. And did you build this product largely anecdotally, or was there some market evaluation of like, there's going to be X number of people that want this kind of Oh, product. I had no idea. Yeah, you had no idea. Yeah, yeah, it was a shot in the dark. Yeah. Because for myself, it was, what do you do? Do you go for PHO versus, and go against the guys who've been doing it for 10 years, like the Guild right. and the Clear? Right. Or do you go into the pre-roll game, which, I mean, it's pretty saturated. And then Everybody, there was yeah. the obvious disposable 510 cart. Uh, I personally wasn't too um, much of a fan of. I understood the importance. I could definitely see like the traction that would take. It's convenience. Yeah, but for me it was, do I want to compete against guys that could potentially outdo me by a thousand X? No. And when I looked at hash, there was no one really interested in scaling it. I think a lot of the guys who are true connoisseurs of cold water hash make it for themselves or friends, and they don't really want to bring it to a global scale. Mm. Whereas for me, the idea of bringing California hash or a California hash brand back to Europe that was extremely enticing. But the economics of it, I mean, it's much more labor intensive. Oh, than, yeah. And so how scalable is it? I mean, you're in the process of doing this. Mm -hmm. Like, is it expensive? Isn't your cost pretty high? It's very expensive. Yeah. And it's very, very difficult. It requires a ton of labor. Um, it's gruesome. It needs very, very specific environmental conditions. It's extremely reliant on the input material. You don't get away with purchasing poor trim, mm. um, and it's very demanding. So like one of the biggest inputs is the water temperature that enters the machine. We currently have a facility in Oakland where during the summer, the water will go up to like 75, 78 degrees Fahrenheit. Yep. That water has to be chilled down to 33 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. And to do that, you have to be quite creative, different methods, because obviously like you could buy a um, cold water chiller 
and those are available. They're definitely options, but you're gonna it's gonna set you back to three hundred thousand dollars if you buy a really scalable tool. And what's the more creative way to do it? More creative way, we've developed a couple of tools um, that we're currently preparing all the paperwork for. Got it. But yeah, it took a lot of ingenuity and a lot of creativity. But we've been doing this for two years and some change now. Got it. So you decide cold water hash is the thing to do. Mm -hmm. You start with these proprietary techniques to do it more efficiently or cheaper. How about the brand? When you think about building a brand, what was the thought process there? So Biscotti itself started in a kitchen of an apartment that I was renting a room from. Um, and it started off as kind of like a joke because I was looking at cookies and I was impressed with just how much cookies had grown and how big of a brand it had become. Mm -hmm. um, and in looking at that, I joked around with my friends like, I bet you I could do a, start a brand called Biscotti, which is just the Italian for cookies. Yeah. And the people around were like, oh, that's not a bad idea. It's a pretty good name. It might catch on. And so we started laughing about it. And then I thought more about Biscotti and I realized Biscotti in Italian means twice cooked. Bis is twice, cotti is cooked. Mm -hmm. I was like, huh, hash is kind of twice cooked, huh. depending on the process that you do. And so it stuck with me. And when I was developing, developing the brand in itself, I tried to, I saw a lot of the best concentrate brands, the ones that had the highest product, have also some of the worst branding. Mm -hmm. So I was like, we need to merge and we have to create some kind of brand identity that could further go globally and have a broader reach, but at the same time offer a high quality product. Our Biscotti. I like the way you say that, by the way. Not yeah. like a stupid American. Biscotti. Yeah, biscotti. Yeah, yeah there you go. Um, That's what I'm used to. Are those cookies twice baked? Is that why? Yeah, they go through a process. That's why they're more crisp. Got and it. I believe I'm not 100%. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, and you can dip them in coffee and right. deliciousness. I love the name. Thank I think you. it's really creative. Um, so, what? Okay, so you come up with the name. And then how do you build the rest of the story? Like what are the tenements, what are the values that represent that for you? So for us, Biscotti, the whole purpose of Biscotti was to present cold water hash at an affordable rate as competitive, while also bringing a very premium um, package with it. So I wanted to create an experience and a packaging experience that would allow the user to feel like they bought something that would resonate and stick with them. I, um, I use like Apple as the standalone key for all of this. Like whenever I think about Apple, I think about all the boxes that they have. And I still have my original iPod box, the MacBook box. Those are boxes that I never want to throw away because of how beautifully done they are. I put other stuff in them. Right, yeah. exactly. And so for myself, it was like, let's create a box. For me, the test is if the user purchases the product, goes home, opens it, and then discards the package, you did not do a good job with the packaging. Mm -hmm. You want to have the user look at the packaging and say, ah, I might keep this. I might find another use for it. But that's also very costly endeavor. Yes and no. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with creativity and design because you can definitely get your rates down if you start shopping abroad or even locally if you find the right person and you get the right volume. Um, I just think a lot of people skip that and we're being kind of lazy about it. I think the previous market was very used to whatever you create gets sold and now we're in a market where you can produce as much as you want. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to sell it. Seems like everybody I know is using Lulu for packaging. Who? Lulu? No. You know that company? Mm -mm. No. Huh. Near the airport? And they do lots of stuff outside of cannabis too. Is that Sungrown Packaging? Are they partnered? No, I don't think so. Hmm. Anyway. Um, so tell me about the first few phases of rolling it out. You get the production started first. How do you get the word out? How do you get into dispensaries? How many dispensaries are you in today? 
currently we should be in about 150, 160. Mm -hmm. um, when we started off, so we rented a temporary facility out of East Oakland near International, which was kind of, uh, it's a rough, rough area of Oakland for sure. Mm -hmm. And we leased out about 4,000 square feet, I want to say, out of, or 3,500 square feet out of a 20, no, out of a 7,500 square foot building. And I kid you not, if you walked into that facility, you would laugh at, and kind of be kind of shocked at where we are right now, because it was a small segment in a large building that had about, I want to say 150 to 250 Asian ladies that were doing, um, what's it called, not hemp, clothing manufacturing. Textiles. Yeah, so yeah. textile. And the walls that separated us were just plywood. So mm -hmm. we would be making cold water hash in the corner of this building and also hear the sewing machines going off nonstop for about 12 hours a day. You'll and never forget that. No, never. And I'll also never forget bringing people into the building and them looking around like, oh my God, is this really where you guys are operating? Uh -huh. And we told everyone, I was like, this was a test. So we wanted to get a, it was very, very difficult to find properties in Oakland. It was even more difficult to find them in the green zone. And then it got even harder once you found the building to convince the landlord that you're going to be a good tenant. And most likely you have to pay some kind of premium on oh, the rent. Oh my God, yeah. yeah. Everything was like three to six dollars per square foot yeah. in a warehouse yeah. with nothing, yeah. like bare bone. Yeah. So we got this building, we found a landlord that allowed us to stay there for six months. And she made it very clear that we had to get out of the building because they were going to redo it entirely. So in those six months, we um, started spinning the machines, we started increasing production, we landed pretty large accounts. So we're working closely with Spark, um, BPG, and we landed in MedMen. Um, I think those were all pretty big testaments of where we were. And that gave us a lot of motivation. So we went out, talked to friends and family, and I, they agreed. Um, my co-founder's older brother agreed to purchase a building for us. So he bought us a building in West Oakland, which we are currently For equity there. or how? It was an investment. It was a very smart investment too, because he bought it at a time where that area was about to get rezoned and it just, it did get rezoned. Uh -huh. So it's a very valuable property now. And he was leasing it to you or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And it's also, it gives us all security. You know, yeah. when your landlord is a family. Yeah. Friend, and it's chill and gets it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Whereas we've heard nightmare, nightmare scenarios. Um, like I have a friend who had been in a building for quite a bit and he just got evicted. The landlord told him they have to get out. And this wow. is after getting your state licenses in. Wow. Yeah. Oh. So you, yeah, having a good landlord was definitely key. Big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you get it eventually into 150, 160 stores. Mm -hmm. That's where you are currently. What's next? Like, how do you get to what? There's like 700 dispensaries or something mm -hmm. like that today. Like, how do you do that? Do you use external distribution? Are you building a sales team? Like, what? What's the playbook? So we didn't go for the distribution license um, out the gate because. We have a very small facility, it's only 2,600 square feet. Mm -hmm. And I knew I wanted to focus entirely on manufacturing. I knew that we could find a distributor that we could work with, and we've worked with quite a few. Currently, we're working with two of them. Um, and what, yeah, to increase sales, we definitely cannot rely on distributors anymore. We've yeah. made that mistake before. Yeah. It doesn't work out. Um, so what we started doing is pulling in more talent. Um, we just recently hired a new business, um, director of business development, and He's spearheading the sales initiative. We have, damn, I think yesterday we onboarded five or six independent contractors. So our sales team went from two, three people to about, I'd say 10 now. So it's growing quite rapidly mm -hmm. and we're quite successful with it. 
I know it's going to keep taking on, and obviously we have to bring on more salespeople, mm -hmm. but we realize that, yeah, definitely. So you're using sales. distributors just for fulfillment, right. just to get it there. Yep. And what about the sales model in for distributors didn't work well? I think it's very difficult for, and look, like I did my own sales before, and I understand how difficult it is for a standalone brand to get in front of the buyer. I understand that a lot of the buyers, especially buyers coming from out of the industry, would much rather sit with somebody who has a portfolio of brands rather than just a single brand, because it's a waste of time. Yep. Like if you have, eight hours in a day, and you're gonna spend an hour with one brand and an hour with another, you'd much rather devote that one hour to 12 brands. Yeah. On the other side of the coin, what makes it very difficult for the brand is being on a menu with 12 to 14 other brands with a sales rep who might not necessarily be incentivized to sell your product. He might like, or she might like another product on their menu, um, or they simply don't understand your brand. Or they just don't have the time right. to talk about all those brands, yeah. It's hard. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I've heard that from a lot of different people. They're like, hey, I ha I'm the best at selling this. I have to do it. Or at least someone that I've There heard. has to be some kind of hybrid. Or the only scenario in which I can see that working is once a brand is so established in the industry that the buyers don't even have to... Well, there's a handful it. of them, right? right? Everybody knows those names that, that customers are coming in and asking for. Um, how do you communicate with your customers? Not the dispensaries, but the end customer. Like, do you do any community sort of events or anything? Like, how do you, how much do you know about the people that are consuming your product? Unfortunately, not a lot. I know, yeah. It's very difficult. Yeah. One, shops don't share data. Um, two, data is very expensive. Third, aside from bud tender education days and demo days, you don't have a lot of exposure. Mm -hmm. It's also very difficult to, a lot of customers don't want you to know that they're consuming. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to get a hold of those people and try to figure out what they like and what they don't like about your product. Mm -hmm. So we almost entirely rely on stores telling us what the feedback's like. Um, Instagram, which is also limited because you know we got shut down once. Facebook is almost impossible to get on. Uh, it seems like it's very difficult to initiate a dialogue with the customer. Yeah. What about direct to consumer stuff? Like have you experimented with Ease or Flower yep. Company or? So we were on Ease for a short period and then due to one, our scale and the distribution model that we're working with, it didn't work out as much. Now we're back in talks and it seems like we're gonna get back on the menu. Okay. I think that was very successful. What I find very interesting is we have like, I have to say 30 to 40 friends in San Francisco who know that I own a brand in the area and they know that that brand is in pretty much every shop around them and yet they have never bought or they've only gone once to buy that product then the minute that we went on ease i had 30 80 to 90% of my friends said oh yeah i tried your product on ease it's great i love it and that for me was very interesting and seeing that there's a demographic that will go to the store actively and then there's a demographic that will absolutely never enter a shop mm -hmm. or they go once for the experience to see what's happening and then right. go back to ease right yeah well, if the legal process is ch challenging enough, mm -hmm. we also have this crazy black market in California. I mean, kind of what are your thoughts there? As someone that does everything above board, went through the regulations, had a hard time finding property, like what's, what's your take on what's happening in California in terms of black market? I think it's very difficult to pin down the illicit market. Um, I don't know. It's yeah, it's a definitely a huge challenge because right now like we're seeing the number of illicit retail shops and deliveries that are out there 
is astronomical. Mm -hmm. um, I think when we were promised in Prop 64 that the industry was going to be great and everything was going to be over the top and everyone was going to be on board, I think a lot of brands invested a lot into compliance and trying to make sure that everything would go right and smoothly. And then we'd also see a lot of people that really didn't care because mm -hmm. their attitude was never been caught, never going to get caught. No, it, in a lot of ways it's safer than ever. Yeah, especially because California protects you on mm -hmm. a lot of those standpoints. Mm -hmm. um, I think it makes it, we've seen definitely a big disparity between NorCal and SoCal. So it's kind of like yeah. everything north of San Jose is pretty regulated. There's yeah. some shops here and there and delivery services, obviously. But then you go down to LA and it's rampant. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, look, you can go on Craigslist anywhere and buy weed, but we yeah. don't have this epidemic of like illegal shops, stuff no. like that, that exists in LA. I think delivery services are the big one. Yeah. Because it's, I mean, you go on weed maps yeah. and you go up delivery and most of them, they look like official shops. And I understand also the consumer that says, well, I didn't know it was not a yeah. license delivery. It's on this website and they're verified. It's not a consumer problem. Mm -mm. It's a regulation problem or an enforcement problem. Right. I mean, and I know that comes down to resources and maybe nobody feels bad for the weed industry. Yeah, and I've heard estimates ranging from three and a half to eight and a half billion dollars to actually tackle all the illicit. Um, Do you know, retailers. I can't remember the percentage of Ill illegal cannabis that's versus yeah. illicit. Yeah. I, last I heard it was like 85 illicit. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, I saw just recently a map that highlighted specifically like the greater L.A. area. And it showed green were the licensed shops and red were the illicit ones. Uh -huh. I mean, you couldn't find the green ones. It was like finding Waldo. I mean, in a in a market that's five billion a year, yep. roughly in California, eighty five percent is not included in that number. Well, and you saw the state was expecting all these um, all this tax money to come yeah. back, and it did right. not make it to happen. No, yeah, it didn't happen. Which I don't that's know. That's wild. I mean, what do you do? Do you do you crack down? Do you spend the money? on the resources to crack down. I mean, this is going to be like the old raids of old if they do that, right? It's, it's very ass backwards how we And I really don't think it's going to work. Yeah. And the other thing, the one thing I really don't like in this space is that there's a lot of newcomers in the industry um, who may have come from other states or different industries itself. And what they've done recently is started um, tattletailing and ratting out certain companies. And I find that that's definitely not the right approach. Yeah, you should never call out somebody else. Yeah, this might be the Italian in me, but you don't open your mouth. You don't snitch. No, absolutely not. Yeah, that's the worst thing you can do. And to see like other company executives to snitch, and to call out small farms that may have like fifty to one hundred plants, that's not the right move. Yeah, I understand. Again, it's not the job of the industry internally, and it's not the consumer's job. Mm. This is a clear government regulation issue. It's going to be very interesting to see how it develops because I don't know of another industry that, that's like that. There isn't like synthetic Adderall out there. Well, it's all synthetic. There's spice. Synthetic. Spice is different though. Because it's quasi-legal. Yeah. Well, it is legal, yeah. right? Um, but like there's no, I mean, I guess there's some, but there's no like moonshine. People aren't like drinking. No. The only thing I can know? compare it to is tobacco imports in Europe. Yeah. So in Europe, there's a big wave of tobacco being imported from uh, east, from uh -huh. so eastern Ukraine and Russia, okay. and it gets brought in at a tenth of the cost. And the guys who do it are making like five to fifty bucks for every run that they do. Okay. And they're smuggling in carfuls or truckloads of yeah. tobacco, but that's it. Right. Like there's 
really nothing else in the United States I can compare it to. Maybe stolen cars. Fascinating. But and so when you think about scaling your business, mm-hmm. well, I guess that's the first question. Are you trying to be a really big brand or are you kind of content being this craft sort of sustainable business that a lot of people are passionate about? No, we definitely want to get much bigger. Okay. Um, our goal is definitely to become one of the leading hash brands in the world. Mm-hmm. And we have been scaling that quite consistently. I think right now the debate is, do you want to set up this model in every single state in the United States? Or do you continue expanding locally and then wait for interstate commerce if it ever does come? Mm-hmm. Which, that's my, my debate. It's like if we set up 50 Biscotti brands in 50 different states, which given, say, everyone is legal or quasi-legal, what happens once it goes federal? Do you pull out of all those states and revert back to California and start shipping out of California, or do you continue producing in those? No, I think it's like a lot of businesses. There's distribution hubs all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but for us, I think the starting material is so important. So for us, like the ideal model would be we just keep sourcing from California, often even Oregon, produce everything here, and then ship it out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rather than working with a Vermont-based indoor grower mm-hmm. and making a very small batch just for the Vermont market. Yeah, how do you maintain that quality mm-hmm. control? That's a, a tough question. It's Yeah, that's for us has been the key and the main reason for why we haven't expanded into that many other states. Um, let's talk marketing mm-hmm. for a few minutes. Everybody's doing billboards, activation at music festivals, they're shelving fees now, rampantly. Like, what's your strategy? What do you do? Well, currently we're raising two and a half million dollars. Um, a portion of that is definitely going to have to go into marketing. Mm-hmm. We what have, percentage? Twenty percent? Oh, less. I'd say ten, fifteen. Because mm-hmm. for us, the most not lucrative, but the best ROI has been educating bud tenders and making sure that they're happy and that they understand our product. Mm-hmm. I think that's the absolute key is for the butt tender and th- for the shop to truly understand what you're giving them. And we have seen the highest returns with that. I don't really understand the whole, m- I think putting up billboards is great if you're trying to get more brand exposure, but at the end of the day, that doesn't necessarily convert into a consumer purchasing a product. And there's no way to track whether it does. No, no. And then we, I mean, we've been invited to sponsor countless celebrity parties, um, celebrity after parties after Coachella or outside lands and one capital but two I just I could never pull the trigger I got very close to a few very large celebrities that I've always been a fan of I was like oh my god I can't believe I'm sponsoring so-and-so's birthday party you want to name drop anybody here? no not yet but you know you look at it you're like oh this could be really cool and it's my childhood dream but at the end it's like do I really want to put 35 to 50 thousand dollars towards someone's party Realistically, like no one there is ever going to buy your product again. If maybe one or two people, it'll there. be a fun night, and that's it. That's it. And you get some cool photos, and you get to post them for what three posts before they get old, and until they take your Instagram down and right, and they're worthless, and then it means nothing. <laughs> and even then, it's like really, like it doesn't convert into anything. So, why don't most brands understand this? Are they seduced by the big marketing agencies that are like, we got to spend the budget somehow? Like, why are they falling into this trap? Well, the, one, there's brands that have raised a ton of money. So they have to and do so they have a lot it. of capital to use. Um, two is just market and just global recognition. I think they, if we had infinite money, we would for sure be doing billboards and sponsoring as many events and trying to get the brand out there as much as possible. Mm-hmm. But without those kind of resources, you have to be a lot more tactical. Mm-hmm. You have to understand 
what makes you money? Like what's gonna get you to the next phase? Because if you dump everything into marketing, you're likely gonna crash. Mm -hmm. And the consumer, like we're not stable enough as an industry right now to confidently say, oh, I'm gonna remain here for the next two or three years. Mm -hmm. The reality of this industry is that you have to pivot all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's the inside joke at our company. Like we always yell pivot in the middle of the company because it's like, you literally, you might show up to work one day and there's something new that happened and you realize, okay, this whole model, scrap it, start new, start fresh. And if you're not ready for those kind of punches, it's gonna be very difficult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're raising around right now. Mm -hmm. When an investor takes a look at your business and they see that these other brands have raised so much money, how do they react? How do they put you in the landscape? What's the pitch like? Like, hey, yeah, we're small, but we have a better product. Like, how, do, how does that pitch go? Well, I think a lot of investors are quite attracted um, to the small raise. So we've done, we did a $225,000 raise in, I say, March of 2018. Mm -hmm. And then we followed up with a $1.2 million in October of 2018. And these are individuals? Uh, the first offices. one was friends and family, uh -huh. so it was spread amongst two dozen investors. Mm -hmm. um, check sizes were ranging between five and twenty or thirty thousand dollars. That was a hard raise to get done, I could imagine. I think we finished in forty-eight hours. Really? Yeah, it was pretty quick. Huh. Yeah, we had a lot of friends and family that were very interested in okay. it. Okay, great. Um, it was way riskier at that time because that's when Session was throwing out blasphemous yeah. comments. Yeah. And then October, I met with, so we got an investment from Surya Private Equity. I met with Aaron Surya, who's one of the founding members, and him and I got along um, a lot through our passion for hash, and we closed that round in October. Um, so that was a $1.2 million round, and now, well, we're almost in September, we're going back out for a $2.5 million round. Mm -hmm. Got it. And again, back to the question, how do investors view you versus the highly capitalized competitors out there? I think they're, yeah, they're captivated by the fact that we've been able to establish ourselves this much, capture this much of the market, the retail space, mm -hmm. and not have spent tremendous funds. So like my co-founder and I pay ourselves very, very little. Mm -hmm. um, and I've definitely seen other executives in this space who pay themselves 160 to 350,000. I've heard as high as a million dollars, I think, if I were an investor, I'd be very unattracted to a deck that shows the CEO, the CFO, and the CEO getting paid 500 grand. Yeah, or like it's like if you go into someone's office and they have super nice furniture, yeah. it's like, well, somebody's paying for this, Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. And then also the marketing fund. It's if you look into a company that's just starting off and is in a space that's very ambiguous and you don't really know which way it's gonna go or how it's gonna steer, what kind of new federal regulations coming out, and then you see that their 50% of their budget is for marketing, I think that's very unattractive. Mm -hmm. I think people can be very creative with marketing. You don't necessarily have to spend a ton of money to get your name out there. It's about the correct partnerships, um, correct activations, spreading the word, and then just honestly having a cool brand. If you have good creatives behind you and a good vision, I think that stands out a lot more than putting 50 to 100 million behind some stupid billboards that don't really do much. Now without, you know, you look at Ignite, I don't know how much their monthly budget was, but I. In San Francisco, yeah, including Berkeley, they had billboards. They had billboards all across the state. And how many shops do you see them in? Yeah. Not many. I don't know a, of a single person who went out of their way to go buy Ignite Flower. Yeah. And I don't know what a CBD 
toothpick does for you either. But. With that one, like I'm pretty attracted to it because okay. I love toothpicks and I personally buy <laughs> nicotine infused toothpicks, which are my like little um, oh, wow, that's you know, cheat, but because I used to smoke a ton of cigarettes uh-huh. and then feeding off, I always have to find a way. And are you biting it or you put it between you chew your it. teeth? Yeah, you, you chew put it, it in your mouth Got and it. you'll get that buzz. All right. I understand that one. So I'm when I saw the CBD one, it. I was like, hmm, that might be pretty work. interesting. Yeah. Got it. How many SKUs are there today? Current for Biscotti? Yeah. So under Biscotti we have, um, we've trademarked 10 SKUs. So we trademarked the Roman numerals from one to 10. Uh-huh. And one to five are pre-rolls, and then six to 10 are concentrates. And we don't have all of them out yet. I think about four or five of them are on the market. Got it. Um, but we plan on rolling out more products. And are they strain so. specific or? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So Biscotti is our more premium line. Um, it's, I brought some packaging for you guys just so you can see awesome. it later, but the whole point behind Biscotti is to partner with very renowned and unique brands. So we partner with IC Collective because of their incredible genetics and amazing flower. Um, we have partnership with Sherbinsky's, uh, was also very reputable strains and an amazing product. Uh, and then we work with like Green Shock, Butter Brand, State Flower. There's numerous farms that we work with and my whole motto with them was, I wanna present what they've done and show how unique it is. So like, Butter Brands has um, a strain called Sierra Madre Land Race, which is very low in THC. It's on our coffee table right now. Exactly, and it has high Delta A, CBG, CBC, CBE, um, cannabinoids that you don't necessarily see in other flowers. So for us, it's paying homage to that cultivator and putting their branding on our packaging Mm -hmm. and exemplifying and showing, trying to tell the story of why that strain is unique, why that cultivar is unique, what makes them different from the other. And then we have a sub-brand called Tutti, which in Italian means everyone or everything, and that's the brand for the masses. So that one's $8 wholesale for oh. a full gram of hash, wow. and it's made mostly from biomass. And, and it's designed to be rolled. Sorry? It's designed to be rolled. Well, like that's our whole message that we're trying to convey is that it's designed to be used in numerous ways. Oh. Um, cold water hash is just pure trichomes collected together and cured, and then we show people that you can make a very easy infusion uh, you could put it into a butter or let it simmer with some olive oil and then drink that. Or you can roll it into a joint, you can put it into your bong. There's just so many facets that you could take. And do you sell the carts too? So we did a PAX pod that launched, I want to say a year ago. That was just a test trial. Mm-hmm. And we have not explored carts since. Okay. Okay. I think we're going to come out with something. I just want to come out with something that's unique and a bit more proprietary. because. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right now, like if you go to Medmen or Harborside, the number of carts that you can choose from is ridiculous. Out of control. And I have, even with the coolest branding that you could have in the world, putting it up on the shelf versus 50 other brands is going to, it's almost impossible. Mm-hmm. You're pretty much just boiling it down to what is the cheapest product on that shelf. Yeah, well, unfortunately, in this industry, there's still a heavy emphasis on dollar per THC. Mm-hmm. And that's not how any other industry works. So it's going to be a really interesting transition because newbies to cannabis, they just don't give a shit about that. Yeah. They just don't, right? And I have to say, I'm caring less and less because everything has gotten so strong that that THC percentage, it's not that relevant. No. I'm more interested in the terpenes, the strain, single strain versus I don't like the mood-based uh, products that doesn't mean anything to me. Um, so we, anyway, had, yeah. we partnered with um, the original Breeders League uh-huh. that had been previously working with the Guild and um, Gold Drop, if I'm not mistaken. And they have 
some of the most incredible genetics. So they've got like vitamin CBD, sunkissed CBD, very unique strains that have high CBD content and also very unique terpene profiles behind them and also very interesting flavonoids. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also partnered with Green Shock Farms based out of Mendocino. They're the guys who host uh, the Mendo Dope Boys. Mm-hmm. And they have uh, like ones as Blues Chaser, um, Green, what was the other one? Tropical Sleigh Ride. There's other, all these genetics have high percentages of every other cannabinoid. And I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. I mean, smoking it, I loved it. My team loves it. The product came out incredible. And then when you bring it to the retail shop, the buyer didn't care. I thought, oh okay, yeah, in my head it was, at least if we get some of these unique strains, the Berkeley market, San Francisco market, maybe Marin will start accepting it. Nothing. Mm. It was nuts. Yeah, I mean, CBN, CBG, THCV, these are amazing things that most people don't know about, and mm-hmm. they don't know what they can do for you. Um, that's going to be fun, too, and I that starts to become more of a thing. The cool thing is that you have brands like Level, who are starting to push that quite Level's heavily. so rad. Yeah, and we need more brands like that. Yeah. We're trying to exemplify and trying to teach people, because honestly, it's the main reason that these other more mainstream brands don't tackle it is because you're going to have to put a lot of marketing dollars behind the education, sell. right? You have to educate yeah. people yeah. instead of, you know, sponsoring the party. Yeah. So it's, are you going to put $50,000 behind an education campaign or are you going to put fifty grand towards the party? Which of your products do you like the most? Ooh. Oh, that's complicated. I love our Singolo, which is our single pre-roll that's hash infused. Okay. And our Resina, which is our loose hash, for yeah. sure. And also, we're spoiled. Like the material that we wash is sublime. Like yeah. we've washed the tits by IC Collective so many times, and we have so much tits around that the end tits is this is the shit. Just so people don't get confused. Yeah. Um, I think that's definitely one of my favorite products. Got it. And you're a daily user. Yes. In the morning when you wake up. No, 5:30 p.m. onwards. Got it. For sure. Got it. Cool. Yeah, I tried to do the whole morning thing. I also went through a pretty intense dabbing phase. So this is back 2016 to 2017. I was definitely deep diving into the concentrates. And, you know, although I understand why some people may dab all day, I tried it out and I was not functional whatsoever. Uh, It doesn't work for me. Nope. I just can't can't function. But the crazy thing is in that phase, you definitely convince yourself, oh, I'll be fine. Well, My day has been productive. You can be functional, but you're not high performing. Right. I guess is the way that I would. I think it's also dependent on the person, how their body receives it. Um, how does your family and friends in Italy react to what you do? Uh, so I think my mother has slowly started to accept You're it. You're like a classic Italian mother, like she's mm-hmm. like making food. Yeah, she's like five foot tall, Italian, has a very, very intense accent when she speaks English. Um, can you do an imitation of your mom? No, she'd kill me. Um, <laughs> so the chicken instead of chicken. But nice. I love my mom to death, but I think it took her a while to fully understand and accept what I'm doing. So I still catch her. Like she, every time I go back to Italy and we're going to say a friend's house or a family member's house, my mom will remind me in the car to let them know that I'm doing it for a medical reason and that I'm here helping medically uh-huh. and not just for the rec market. Yeah. And I think till this day she's pretty sour because we went to a family friend's house and I told them that it was a REC product. And I tried to tell them like REC and medical is pretty much the same thing in California. Yeah. There are no medical licenses only now. Yeah. Yeah. There's maybe a handful. And 
that did not go well. It didn't sit well with her because I know that her friend later called her. It's like, oh, I can't believe your son is selling cannabis to everyone. See, drug deal, blah, blah, blah. You know, it gets pretty negative. My friends, on the other hand, I think they're pretty split. So I, I grew up a lot in the Middle East um, and Southeast Asia. And I know a lot of people who come from extremely conservative families. And to be quite honest, it was quite difficult because I have numerous friends that removed me from Facebook mm. after I announced what I was doing. Mm. I think a lot of it had to do with their parents kind of having that talk with them saying you shouldn't be friends with the drug dealer. Yeah. Um, and then a lot of them who just didn't believe in what I believed in. We lost some friends yeah. when we started doing this show and being in the industry. You know, you can't make everybody happy, I guess. But, but I think it's a positive thing on the sense that if they're not going to stick with you when you're going through something like this, then it's not even worth your time. Like, why would I dedicate any kind of a attention to people who don't respect what I'm doing or at least try to understand? Um, very good point. Very good. If you can't handle me in my bad times, you don't deserve me in my good times. And for me, it's also openness. What I found very interesting is that the last three years, when I started, there was a lot of people that were very close-minded. And now those same people, when I go back home or I go to another country that I lived in, they start asking like, oh, so how is it? I heard so-and-so, I heard the money's good. I'm like, cool, like three years ago, you were talking shit behind my back. And now you're here trying to figure out and how you can get involved. Is that a good feeling? Like you feel like you're vindicated or is it no. like, no, like fuck you. It kind of just shows me that people are two-faced. Yeah. I think a lot of the people that were against it for religious or political reasons then got interested when they started seeing the money. Mm. And they think, oh, yeah, he owns a cannabis company, so he must be so rich and I could become rich. Mm-hmm. And that's where I break it down to them, like, you're not going to make money. Yeah. It's going to be very difficult. Yeah. Don't. It's not worth it. A, you don't like the product. B, you're not going to make the capital that you think you're going to, so just give up right now. Because you, if you're not <laughs> passionate and absolutely batshit crazy, you're not going to make it in this industry. Um, who's your biggest role model? In general? Yeah. Enzo Ferrari and my grandfather. Um, definitely my dad too. I've got a couple. I've been very fortunate to have lived in so many countries and met so many very noble people. Yeah, how did that happen? Is your dad a diplomat or like how Yeah, did so you? my dad worked for the Foreign Service. He's worked for the United Nations, USAID, Danita, which is a Danish program. Um, he specializes in uh, humanitarian rights and a lot of post-conflict judicial resolution. So he's very much on the legal side, focusing on uh, he's probably going to yell at me for not knowing this entirely, but helping country, third world and developing countries go through a judicial reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's taken us to a lot of places that have been either directly affected or indirectly affected by wars. Mm-hmm. So we spent, like I was born in Italy, and I think I was under a year old when we moved to Palestine. So we moved to Jerusalem during the Intifada. Mm-hmm. And then from there it was all of Eastern, uh, the ex-Yugoslavia, uh, Southeast Asia, the Middle East. Um, North Africa. So that sounds incredibly exciting. As a kid, did you like it? Yes and no. I think it was very exciting. It got very difficult at the age of 13, 14, having to leave friends behind. Mm. I was very used to it and kind of desynthesized in effect. And then, you know, once you start having a crush on a girl or you make your best friend and mm. your father's like, don't get too attached because in six months we're gone. Um, that happened a lot throughout my childhood. So we'd move either every four t- months to two years, depending on the position and what was happening. Wow. And also if they're about to get hit again. Wow. Rough. Yeah. Um, 
This has been awesome, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Likewise, thank you for Your having me. Your story is very authentic. I love how you came to the land of milk and THC over here. Like, yeah, right. It's great stuff. It's exciting to be here. Yeah. Well, good luck with the race. Thank good you. luck with the brand. And uh, great to see you again, thank man. Thank you.